Summer's here and weekends are for grilling. And there's no better choice for your family than the prime beef from the Hunter Company Limited. The secret to their success began with their founder over 100 years ago, his selection of only the finest bulls and heifers to launch his company. As they like to say, he emitted numerous herds mnemonically because fewer bulls, finer beef. Happy Fridays. Coming your way all summer long, only from the Hunter Company Limited. Hey, if this is your first time listening, I strongly recommend going back to episode one, Where Warm Waters Halt, to listen to the story from the beginning. Okay, here's the show. Cavalry Audio. In the last two episodes, we met Barbara and Dave, two remarkable searchers with solves that, according to the prevailing wisdom, turned out to be wrong. Just don't try telling them that. Even though both their solves were in New Mexico, and Forrest clearly stated that the chest was found in Wyoming, and, most telling of all, neither one of them has the treasure chest. Granted, we know very little of Barbara's actual solve, but we do know that Dave's was incredibly complex and required you to accept some very creative and far-fetched connections that fly in the face of Forrest's most repeated admonition. Don't overthink this. Look at it as a child would. Which brings us to Michael O'Connell and the scientific method. Mr. O'Connell judiciously applied the rigors of statistical analysis as well as the tenets of the scientific method while formulating his solve. Hearing him discuss how he built his ideas of where Fenn hid the treasure feels like an oasis of logic in a vast desert of confirmation bias. So I studied, when I was at BU, I studied urban affairs and statistical planning, advanced statistics. I took four different statistics classes, at least, and I took hard ones, and I studied administrative science at Boston College right up until he pulls the rug out from under you. Welcome back to X Marks the Spot. You're listening to Episode 7, No Paddle Up Your Creek. Before we get into the seventh clue, and more specifically... Michael O'Connell's incredible solve. Let's take a minute to go over the scientific method. What it is, when and how it was developed, and why so many searchers who could have benefited from its application completely ignored its principles. Although Aristotle is considered the father of the scientific method, it didn't become widespread in the scientific community until the 1600s, with several notable exceptions. Johannes Kepler and Galileo Galilei being two of the most well-known. So, for 500 years, the scientific method has been employed by the biggest minds in science, mathematics, medicine, and the humanities in an effort to acquire an accurate understanding of the world around us. The method involves several steps, and it begins with observation. Meaningful, 
scientific observation of a specific phenomenon. That observation is then followed by a hypothesis, which is basically a set of predictions based on the previous observations. Then, and this is super important, that hypothesis is rigorously tested, preferably by your enemies or your competition, to ascertain the validity of the predictions made. Are the results correct? Are they repeatable in a controlled setting? And most importantly, is it falsifiable? Meaning, do the conditions surrounding the testing of the hypothesis allow for the possibility of failure? If not, then no meaningful tests are possible. Because the truth welcomes rigorous questioning. Conversely, anything less than the truth will be exposed by the challenge this method imposes. After testing, the data is analyzed and a conclusion is reached. A tentative conclusion. It's tentative because science is always learning. New and better testing is always being developed to better challenge existing hypotheses to, again, acquire an accurate understanding of the world around us. To the best of our knowledge. For now. Until we learn more. And when a hypothesis is tested and fails, it's not considered a failure. Why? Because knowledge was gained. We know what something definitely isn't which brings us ever closer to discovering what is. The generally accepted seventh clue in Forrest Fenn's poem is, there'll be no paddle up your creek. Like all clues in the poem, and everything Forrest ever wrote, the meaning behind this has been hotly debated, with the majority of the search community falling into two categories. It either means that you need to follow a dry riverbed, thereby a paddle isn't necessary, or you need to navigate a creek on foot, again, negating the need for a paddle. The use of the word creek to describe the feature is understood to primarily serve the rhyme scheme of the piece and could easily be a stream or a river on a map. John Morgan was in the former camp. So I started to think about like, okay, no paddle up your creek. It probably means that it's a dry creek bed that's coming off of the canyon because it, well, these canyons are fed by tributaries and when the snow melt happens and there's all these smaller little rivers that feed the big river but in the summer they're dry uh, they're kind of just dry offshoot of the main canyon so it's like, there's no paddle up your creek because it's dry creek you can't paddle up so it must be one of these dry creek beds up the side where uh, treasure is hidden as time passes, and the hopes of some bombshell announcement that would expose a broad conspiracy surrounding the finder Jack Stoof fade into the background, we can now hope that those burning knots of jealousy and confusion in the stomachs of the most devoted and convinced searchers have also met with some measure of relief. The possible locations for the treasure chest have been distilled to a place called Nine Mile Hole in Wyoming. Exactly where will be discussed in a later episode. But for the purposes of this episode, and specifically the clue, No Paddle Up Your Creek, we'll stay in a search area that geographically fits with the clues in a way that is simple and makes sense, even to a child. And just wait till you hear how Mr. O'Connell's solve fits in. 
Let's recap how we got here. From Forrest's point of view, on the day he hid the treasure. So, according to Forrest himself, he was at an event up in Cody, Wyoming. Remember his statement in the days following the announcement that the treasure had been found. He said, interest in Cody is growing. So, he knew he was going to Cody, and before he left Santa Fe, he decided to bring his treasure with him. He gets to Cody, rents a car, and heads off into Yellowstone Park, a place he knows like the back of his hand. Now, the poem is already written. This is the culmination of 30 years of planning. Writing and rewriting the poem, switching out items in the chest, figuring out the best time to hide it. And suddenly, the day arrives. He obviously knows the poem by heart and is surely reciting it, maybe even out loud as he makes his way to the place where warm waters halt. He smiles as he then takes it in the canyon down, which most likely means he turned off the main road for one that follows the Madison River more closely. And after a distance that's too far to walk, less than 10 miles, he puts in, or parks, below the home of Brown. His favorite fishing spot for brown trout, Nine Mile Hole, existed in his mind as the home of Brown. He gets out of his car, grabs either the chest or the treasure itself. We're not sure which he took first. We just know he made two trips. Then proceeds to wade across the river, reminding himself as he summons his courage that this is no place for the meek, while also knowing that he's close to the final resting spot for the treasure, that the end is ever drawing nigh chuckling to himself that the hidden meaning in that clue also means that he'll go left once he makes it across the river. And here is where the current clue comes into play. There'll be no paddle up your creek. At first glance, this clue seems out of order. We've already gotten the next directive. To go left into the draw once we're out of the river, right? So why is he telling us that we won't need a paddle? basically reinforcing that we need to cross the river on foot. The answer is that this set of clues, from there it's no place for the meek, the end is ever drawing nigh, there'll be no paddle up your creek, and the eighth clue, just heavy loads and water high. We'll get into the eighth clue in the next episode, but those four clues, numbers five through eight, they all take place with you in the water. Once you've forded the Madison River, you follow clue number six, and take a left into the draw. So we could argue that No Paddle Up Your Creek actually references the fifth clue, No Place for the Meek, in that Forrest is telling us that it's no place for the meek because you have to cross the river on foot. Hence, there'll be no paddle necessary. Remember, to the extent possible, these clues are a set of directions. It's important to take them in order, and it also seems highly likely that this clue, No Paddle Up Your Creek, exists to reinforce the fact that you should be in a river at this point in the search. The next clue only seems to reinforce that idea. But as always, the question remains as to exactly where we're supposed to start the search. Where is that first location that gets you started with this crazy set of directions? That place that makes everything else make sense. Turns out, we're pretty sure we know where it is. 
that fabled mystical spot where warm waters halt. It's a rather common geographical occurrence, the confluence of two rivers tucked into the extreme northwest corner of Yellowstone National Park called Madison Junction. This is the place where the geothermal heated water of the Firehole River ends its meandering northern flow at the Madison River. It then takes a sharp left and heads due west into Montana. That joining of the Firehole with the Madison allows the warmer waters of the Firehole to cool off considerably, allowing a more welcoming environment for what the Madison is famous for, fly fishing for brown trout. And not too far past Madison Junction, following Madison Canyon to the west, you'll come upon Nine Mile Hole. Not too far, but too far to walk. Starting your search at this spot at Madison Junction, which is widely believed to be the correct location that Forrest is referring to in the first clue in his poem. It's the culmination of millions of hours of work by dedicated searchers committed to a common goal. It took an enormous amount of trial and error and some questionably invasive investigative work into the life of Forrest Fenn himself to arrive at this solve for where warm waters halt. And considered with the rest of the clues in order, it all fits. But what if we told you that someone had managed to decipher this location without ever having to learn a single thing about forest, or the chase, or fly fishing, or even Yellowstone? What if the answer was hiding in plain sight all along? We have someone who claims to have found the answer through entirely different means. Someone who believes that there's a set of clues that lives within the original set of clues. And he's gonna walk us through it. His name is Michael O'Connell. And like Dave Woodard from the last episode, he's from Massachusetts. Also like Dave, he's in law enforcement. Mr. O'Connell is a police officer from Boston with over 30 years on the job. At the beginning of this episode, we briefly covered the scientific method and how it was thoughtfully applied, at least in the beginning, by Michael. But let's have him tell us. After the break. Here's Michael O'Connell of the Boston Police Department. So I went to Northeastern undergrad, all right, and, which is a very good school, okay? And I studied criminal justice and political science. And part of that was statistics and economics of crime and all this rational decision-making. So one of the people that taught there, it was James Fox. He would teach you to use logic and to figure out different stuff, which makes sense for a police officer. You should be able to logically follow a trail, and that trail will lead you to the end of what happened, whether it's a crime or, or a treasure hunt. Like You should be able to follow the trail. So using that theory as a police officer, basically I was using a null hypothesis and a hypothesis, also inductive and deductive reasoning. So I would try to figure out a solve and then make it valid before I'm going to go all the way out to the Rocky Mountains because that's too far a journey and it's too big a hardship on your family because you're in New England. So basically, it was all armchair stuff for years, for like six years. I had all nine clues figured out. I'm not saying they were right, but 
I always had all nine clues figured out. So I had a destination at the end. And I figured if I parked my car, I'd be within three miles of the treasure. As a dedicated public servant and father of four, it just didn't make sense for Michael to make several trips out west in search of a treasure that, in his mind, may or may not exist. So I studied, when I was at BU, I studied urban affairs and statistical planning, advanced statistics, and I studied administrative science at Boston College. So my background was probably different than other people because also I investigated lots of crimes over a 30-year career as a police officer. So my background was different. So I was always hesitant because I want to have exact facts because you're innocent before proven guilty, right? And so some of it I was profiling for his fact, like the way you do a profile on any person of interest, you do a profile on them. So when you're a police officer, you'd like to understand who you're dealing with. So I would try to understand him and by understanding him that it would lead me to help figure out his clues. But I had to see the world through his eyes, not my own eyes, his eyes. Yes. Like so many other searchers, Mr. O'Connell was invited to sit down with Forrest at the Collected Works bookstore. He wanted to get a read on the man, to develop a profile, in order to make an educated guess as to the validity of Forrest's claims about the treasure, as well as, of course, to try and get an edge. To try and figure out how Forrest thinks in an effort to get closer to where the treasure lay hidden. And what did Michael's profile tell him? We talked for 40 minutes. I didn't ask him any specific questions about his clues because that's cheating. I didn't do that. That's dishonorable. I didn't ask him a single question about his chase. But I did look him in the eyes directly when he was talking to me. So when he talked to me, I can, I think a lot of people can, but police officers generally can get a feeling if somebody is trying to deceive them or lie to them or manipulate them. I know I can. So if someone tries to pull the wool over your eyes, sometimes you'll detect it. I sensed no deception from him whatsoever. I sensed character. I sensed he was having fun with it. He was enjoying it. And I, I really felt that he had a certain amount of character to him in terms of his, you know, he was so successful in business. He was a family man. He'd raised his children. He was married and he, and he'd served in the military. Like there was a part of him that just was great. I'm not saying he didn't have some flaws, but there was a part of him that was special and great. And that's what made the treasure seeking and the chase so much fun because you were competing with him to, to try to beat him in his game. He sensed character. He sensed no deception from him whatsoever. So Michael made the determination that Forrest had hidden a treasure chest full of gold and that it was still out there somewhere. It was time for Detective O'Connell to put his methods to the test. I mean, I think like every searcher, they're all confident in their clues. They, they call it confirmation bias. Some people are overconfident. Like, I was aware that I could be 100% wrong, but if you didn't try, because, you know, people were thinking somebody was getting close to the treasure, and I was afraid somebody would find it without me even ever looking for it. So the greatest defeat would be not going. So I got out there one time. I would have gone more if I lived closer, but it was just too big a journey, too much money to spend on something that doesn't, you know, move your family forward, you know? It's not like you're paying for your, your kids' college tuition. Michael exudes a sense of dignity and fairness. It's not a put-on. He genuinely believes everything he says. I would try to be honest with people for the most part, but I wasn't going to give them my solve, but 
I give him enough. I gave up warm water salt as I thought was near old faithful. I said that. And I said, then you get a cake in the canyon down. And I said, I'm not going to tell you which way to go. There's a lot of canyons there. You make up your own mind. So, you know, I was very public about things. And I, I think that's why some of the community kind of like me. Others of them probably don't like me. Maybe they don't like New England guys. I don't know. You know, <laughs> I go, nobody likes police anymore, but the police still love you. You know, just remember that we still love the community. Yeah. He shared part of his solve publicly. And what's more, he admits defeat and manages to find the blessings and failure that most of us are just too busy to see. I tried everything, but I failed miserably. It was fun. It was cool. It was beautiful. Like it was, it was beyond beautiful. It was, it was majestic. Like just me in the mountains, walking up these mountain trails and walking across, you know, open ground with flowers everywhere and views everywhere. Obviously schooled in the scientific method, it appears Mr. O'Connell was also familiar with the Socratic method. Because by admitting his own failures and accepting his own ignorance, Michael was made wiser than the other searchers who, every bit the same failure, still claimed to possess an arrogant knowledge and in some cases claim victory, but then are left to live in resentment, anger, and the morass of litigation. But not Michael. He seems to be above it all. Okay, so let's get into his solve. Suffice it to say that Michael had respectably believable solves for the clues, and that his understanding of the poem mirrors that of most of the search community. Nine clues, starting with the line, begin it where warm waters halt, and ending with, if you've been wise and found the blaze. I know we haven't discussed clues eight or nine yet, and forgive me for jumping ahead, but this is important, in that Mr. O'Connell was, so far, the only searcher we've spoken with that had Wyoming as the state in which the treasure was hidden. More specifically, he had the treasure within Yellowstone Park. How he had the treasure being hidden in the park is what makes his solve so interesting. And for reference, the blaze is part of the nine clues. And supposedly, if you find the blaze, you need only look down and the treasure will be at your feet. A blaze is a marker, usually signifying a trailhead or some other important feature in the woods. We'll get more into that in episode nine. For now, just know that the blaze in Forrest's poem is of supreme importance. Over the next few minutes, you'll hear both sides of the call between Mr. McConnell and myself as the interview was being recorded. I think the blaze is actually in the poem, and I think the blaze is the GPS coordinates inside the poem. Okay, back up. You think there's GPS coordinates inside the poem? Yes, I think there's an exact GPS coordinate inside the poem, yes. Have you been able to figure that out? Yes. That would lead you very close to where the treasure is buried. You still have to search. You'd still have to do your search, but it's there somewhere. If you go into the poem, and every time you see the word two, you write that number down. You'll find the twos really quick. So the first stanza, the first word in the stanza says begin. So that's where you're going to begin the count. That's where it starts. You're starting to begin, okay? So if you look at the third sentence down, not far, but too far to walk. 
the fourth word is two, two. T O O. Correct. So I want you to write, put a two over that, and then far, and then you go to another two. Put another two over that. Oh, two twos. Okay. Okay. So two plus two on the side to the right side of that equals four. Okay. Got it. All right. So then you're going to skip down to the next stanza. You see the four, F O R four. That's a homophone. Okay. This gets a little dense. But let me explain what Michael is getting at here. Simply enough, every time a word in the poem can be turned into a number, you use the numerical value. For instance, when you see the word two, that's T-O or T-O-O, that becomes the number two. Anytime the word four is used, F-O-R, that becomes the number four. The only exceptions to the two and four rule are the words done, D-O-N-E, where we use the O-N-E to get the number one, and the word listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, where we use the T-E-N to get the number 10. Michael also noted that in the line, there'll be no paddle up your creek, the phrase add up does appear. But I'm going to make a judgment call here and say that that is probably a coincidence. I leave it to you to decide. So how does this become GPS coordinates? Okay, if a line has more than one number, a two and a four, for instance, you add those numbers together and put the sum total next to the line. What you'll end up with is numbers next to eight lines. In order from the top of the poem down, we get four, four, two, six, one, one, zero, four, two. So the beginning one is four four point two six. Yep, and the other one is one ten point four two. Wow. Okay. And this these coordinates are in Yellowstone. Those lead to Yellowstone. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> if you want to play along at home, go back a minute or so and listen to the instructions and give this a try. To plug the coordinates into Google Maps, you simply type in. 44.26 comma space and then a minus sign which indicates the longitude then 110.42 one more time that's 44.26 comma space minus 110.42 try it i'll admit it absolutely blew my mind that these numbers pulled out of forest fen's poem lead to Yellowstone. More X marks the spot after the break. So the numbers are in there. Now, that's my opinion. That doesn't mean everybody agrees. Some people think it's a coincidence and that it's not valid. That's okay. Now, so what I think Forrest did, because he was a pilot... I think he put in the Latin longitude to make it interesting, but I think he also did the verbal clues. So Homer Brown, that's a specific place. No place for the meek, like paddle up your creek. I think there's clues in the words, so you have to figure out the clues. So I think the finder's claiming he didn't know about the numbers, but he may have known or not known, I don't know, because he doesn't want to own up to those numbers because Yellowstone will be all over him. So I don't know but he may have found it a different way. 
by just figuring out the clues. So putting Yellowstone National Park GPS coordinates and just put in the numbers. You see how Old Faithful, see what Old Faithful is? Some people like me think Old Faithful's in play. That could be Warm Waters Hall, or it's close to that. Let's just say it's close to that, okay? So your numbers that I just gave you from the poem, it puts you north of the southern entrance. It puts you east of Old Faithful and it puts you west of the entrance. So it puts you in the national park. So no doubt, Yellowstone officials probably figured that out too because they're not stupid. They got attorneys, they're smart. So that's part of the reasoning of what I think the blaze is. Giving Yellowstone officials credit for likely solving this numerical GPS riddle on their own? A bit of a stretch, I think. Okay, so the big question, what are the odds of this really being a thing? I would think the mathematical, bear in mind, I took four different statistics classes, at least, and I took hard ones. The mathematical odds of those exact numbers giving you the latitude or longitude to a location in Yellowstone Park When he talked about Yellowstone Park, I think he wrote like 42 pages in his book out of 110 pages, 42 pages on Yellowstone inside his book. 42 is the weight of the chest. And Forrest had mentioned the chest weighed 42 pounds. A couple of times he slipped and said 44 pounds. He was giving you the latitude saying 44. So when he said a couple of times, he said, oh, the chest weighs 44 pounds. He said, oh, I mean 42. But that was the latitude, 44. I think he was well aware. That, he was, that, it was, that latitude and longitude were valid. So Michael lost focus there and never gave us the mathematical odds of the existence of relatively obvious homophonic numbers in the poem that, honestly, a fifth grader could decipher. The odds of those numbers, when read as latitude and longitude, not only being in the correct hemisphere, on the correct continent, in the correct region, in the correct state, And in Yellowstone Park at Old Faithful, one of the most popular tourist attractions in the country, the odds are remote at best. And although Michael is highly educated in statistical probability, he didn't answer the question. But it felt like he had an answer. So we went to a different statistician and posed the same question. Here's what we were told. Quote, The likelihood of those numbers pinpointing a spot in one of the so-called treasure states of New Mexico, Colorado, Montana, and Wyoming. Not even getting as specific as Old Faithful in Yellowstone. The odds of random numbers hidden in the poem leading basically to just the western United States are similar to the odds of you getting struck by lightning while being struck by lightning. So what are we supposed to do with that? Over these last three episodes, we've heard Barbara Anderson and Dave Woodard, two searchers convinced they're the only ones to solve the poem, and each with separate solves in different locations. And we just heard Detective O'Connell's likely misguided attempt at deciphering coordinates hiding in plain sight within the text of Forrest's poem. Why am I confident in discounting the efforts of these treasure hunters? Because none of them found the treasure chest. One guy found it and followed the protocol of contacting Forrest, sending photos, and traveling to Santa Fe to allow Forrest to inspect it and pose for more photos. Absent a massive conspiracy, or a slip of the tongue that allowed someone to retrieve the chest without actually solving the poem, Jack Stoof is the guy. 
We only know his name because of a lawsuit that would have revealed it eventually, and he decided to get out in front of it and do it himself. In the next episode, we'll hear more about the finder, Jack Stoof, and how he did what thousands of others could not. He figured out where Forrest Fenn wanted to die. Also, I think it's a secret identity, which then led me to believe, through countless hours of research, that there's a strong possibility he could be d- I can't spoil it yet. But you won't believe where this is going. That's next time on X Marks the Spot. X Marks the Spot, The Legend of Forrest Fenn, is a Cavalry Audio production. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and Jason Seagraves. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Our associate producer is Margot Carmichael. Zach McNeese is our sound editor, mixer, and post-production supervisor. Music by Blue Dot Sessions and Soundstripe, with additional original music by Bruce Whitkin. I'm Brandon Morgan, your writer and narrator. Thanks for listening. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.